Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's show. So a few years ago, I came across a book about the divine feminine that I knew would be music to my soul. And I knew it for a lot of reasons, but especially from reading some of the author's opening words when she was describing the sacred feminine, because what she wrote felt so familiar to me and my experience. So I want to share a few of those words with you. Here's what she says. Who is she? She is your power, your feminine source, big mama, the goddess, the great mystery, the web weaver, the life force. The first time, the 20th time, you may not recognize her or pretend not to hear as she fills your body with ripples of terror and delight. But when she calls, you will know you've been called. Then it is up to you to decide if you will answer. Mm. Truer words never written as far as I'm concerned. And the book I'm quoting here is the Nautilus Award winner, Burning Woman. And I've been a huge fan of the author ever since. I kind of, you know, cyber stalk her online. <laughs> Not in a scary way. But I'm so thrilled she's joining me on my show today. Lucy Pierce is a best-selling author and the founder of Womancraft Publishing, which releases life-changing books for, for women by women. Womancraft's authors are published are based in the in the US, Ireland, Switzerland, Portugal, Canada, and the UK. And to date, their books have been published in nine different languages. Lucy is also the author of nine life-changing nonfiction books for women, including two Nautilus Award recipients, Burning Woman, which I just quoted, and Medicine Woman, Reclaiming the Soul of Healing as well as Creatrix, She Who Makes, and Moontime, Harness the Ever-Changing Energy of Your Menstrual Cycle. Her work has also been featured in a number of published anthologies, and she's currently working on her next book, She of the Sea. Lucy is also a mother of three, and she's joining us today from her home in East Cork, Ireland. Lucy, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful. So, you know, as I was reading this, the first question that I wanted to ask you is, how do you sleep? When do you sleep? <laughs> do you want to know an honest answer? I believe I, myself to be lazy. How, how can that be? How can that be? Because I, I don't even, I can't even wrap my head around writing nine books okay, and having so, three children. Those two things alone, let alone a publishing company. How? How is this possible? <laughs> I know, right? So... So, so there's that, there's that driving thing in me that says, oh, you're not doing enough. Oh, you could do this. And I, I am very lucky to be the recipient of an awful lot of seed ideas that plant themselves in dreams when I wake up, when I'm sitting in the car driving. And I kind of always feel that it's, it's a bit ungrateful to say no to them. So I seem to say yes to an awful lot. But as my body has kind of um, 
struggled with various illnesses and, and stuff like that, I've had to say no to more in the last few years, which I found really hard and really just focus my energy on fewer things. But still, I need to be writing a book all the time. And <laughs> I, I, need, I need to find my words and my expression through my creativity because otherwise living isn't possible for me. And so mothering makes living harder in many ways for me, although I adore my children dearly and they have enriched me in so many ways, they do make my, my life harder as well because um, I was recently diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum. And so that, that helped me to understand why I struggle with things that other people don't necessarily struggle with. So for me, for me to write, to create is, is to live. It's as important as breathing for me. So that's what I do. Mm. Hmm. I'm so glad that you named the, I just, I want to honor your, um, your honesty and <laughs> uh, courage and just naming the, 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 just the the challenge of um, or motherhood making life harder. I, you know, I I love it too, and I also feel that. And I wonder, I wonder how many women who have a really deep creative urge and just a really rich inner life uh, share that feeling. Well, it's what pushed me to write my very first book. I'm aware we're not starting anywhere where we you normally starting your interviews right but I just I just you you asked me so I want to be honest in the answering because to hear a bio like mine I would find that really intimidating and sitting listening to it I find it intimidating because it's like my god how did I do all that but <laughs> I need people to know that I do it because I have to it's it is how I survive um it's not it's yeah, it, it's that is the baseline of it. So the first book I wrote was because I had decided that in order to survive in this life, I would turn me down. And turning me down meant turning my cre creativity off because that was the big scary thing. So if I just turn that down, then I could just be normal. I could just fit in. <laughs> um, but in doing that, that, that wasn't actually feasible. For me so I, I managed it until I'd had my children and then with each child this need for me to create became stronger and stronger until I had three of them sick with chickenpox at the same time and they were four four and a half two and a half and one mm. and the one-year-old was breastfeeding and the two and a half year old I didn't know then was on the autism spectrum and she had the worst case of chickenpox I've ever seen which have left her scarred all over and so I had three of them all over me for two and a half three weeks cranky and sick and tired and just needing mama and mama needing space that's when I started writing my first book about the need for creativity for some mothers not all mothers because a lot of us get called earth mothers if we're a little bit alternative or hippie and I was like whoa I'm not an earth mother and I found this um this archetype um in a book which I had loved and reread many times called um, Women's Bodies, Women's Wisdom by Christiane Northrup. Mm -hmm. And she mentioned the creative rainbow mother. And every cell in my body turned on and I was like, that, that's me. 
and it was this woman who needs who isn't just satisfied by domesticity and her children she needs to create like she needs to breathe and she rather than her children being her greatest kind of accomplishment her children she inspires her children rather than being their everything and i just thought that that's me why haven't i heard more about this archetype and so I, I i went everywhere on the internet couldn't find anything and so i was like right i've got to write about this so <laughs> so mm -hmm. so it was that's what has always driven my work is my need to understand myself and my need to find a place in this world because I don't feel like I fit in a lot of different world ways. So it's been a making sense. So that's what my writing is. That's what my art is. It's a, a reaching for sense or finding words for the, the churning inexplicable inside. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. And I wonder how many, how many women and you know, how many listeners have that, that feeling of, um, you know, not, not fitting, not fitting in this world or in whatever framework we've been, been given about how we're supposed to exist, you know, and I felt that when reading, um, when reading Burning Woman too, you know, that, that same kind of feel of, uh, I, I'm larger than this, or I am more expansive than this, or I am, I'm, I'm just not I'm this different to what yeah. I've been told I am. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what women really resonate with about my work because, because I tell it raw and true. Um, and I show the mess as well as the, the glory, but I, sh I show the, the terror and the fear and the, because that, that quotation you read from burning woman yeah. is one of the truest things I've ever been able to put words to and there's a bit in the middle of it about the terror and for me that's what was building in me as I knew we were going to have this interview it wasn't a terror of you it wasn't a terror of me it was a terror of this of her of this incredible awesome power that pumps through my veins that I connect to on a regular basis that I don't yet fully understand. I probably never will understand, but all of my work is about understanding and, and making stronger that connection with it. And yet it scares me. The way I know that she is near is because my body starts shaking mm -hmm. <laughs> because I feel, I feel scared and sh sh like sick in my stomach and like it's, it's not a lovely, soft, gentle, it's a fully alive feeling um, that I get from her, whatever she is, this bigger power. And so my instinct to somebody who's quite a nervous person always would have been to run away from that. You know, you run in the opposite direction of what scares you, right? That's, that's what you do if, if, if um, flight is your your adrenaline response and to you know for other people they would freeze for other people they would fight but what if that's actually not the response to her because what we've been told about her isn't necessarily true what if this feeling of of terror 
that we have is a different sort of fear, a different sort of excitement of ourselves, a different sort of aliveness, a bigger power than we're used to. And what if we step towards that and walk into that and open ourselves to it? That is my work. And it scares me. It scares me every day, not because it's wrong, but because it's a big power source that I haven't been taught from birth how to interact with. And so I'm having to learn as I go. Mm. This is all resonating with me very much. Um, but I really feel like I want to speak to that, to that fear element, because for a lot of women, they feel the fear and they, they think that means it's wrong or it's yeah. bad. Yeah. I tend to think of things in, um, you know, I, I, I'm a very embodied person. So I feel, I feel mm. stuff in my body really deeply. Mm. And what it feels like to me sometimes is that whatever is coursing through me is too big for this physical container to hold exactly. and that yeah. I'm afraid it's going to shatter me. Like I can't, exactly. I can't hold it. And I have the same, I shake, I, I, I mean, I, I just have, you know, it, it's all like things that, you know, we, we deem not acceptable <laughs> in society, mm. right? Like, you're not supposed to start shaking or, you know, teeth chattering yeah. or, or whatever. Crying. Or crying. Crying yeah. is one of them. Because yeah. we're supposed to look strong, right? That's how, what yeah. we've been taught. Look strong, present a powerful mask, present a persona that looks like it's in control. Because in our culture, being in control is the baseline of how you get respected yeah um so to see somebody who is quaking and shaking and crying makes you know we've been indoctrinated with this idea of the crazy woman who is is the woman who you can't trust because her emotions are in control of her because she's not logical or rational and so we get really scared when we get these feelings that oh i'm being crazy right now rein it in rather than acknowledgement of this is a big power coming through me. Mm -hmm. I'm really, really aware we're still not where we should be, but I've got a story to tell you. Yes. Can I tell you the story? And first of all, let's just clarify. There's, I, yeah, I've, we're exactly where we should be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we haven't started with my childhood. But anyway. Uh, we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. Yes, <laughs> share a story. This is where we are. So last year, I was invited to speak at the Goddess Conference in the UK. This was truly the biggest honor of my career. I was invited as keynote speaker. I was both honored to my depths and terrified to my depths. So the invitation came in October 2018. And for exactly nine months until the day I stepped on that stage, I felt sick and I shook and my mental health plummeted dealing with the amount of terror that was coursing through me because of this. How was I going to be able to stand there in front of all of these people whose lives were dedicated in one way or another to the goddess and speak my truth, which might not be the truth that they wanted to hear, which might not have been their truth. And did I have the right and all of that stuff was going through my body and my mind. And I got there, the first day I got there, 
I had an autistic meltdown when I walked into the room. The power of the room with the people in it and the goddess banners was too much. And I ran out of that room. And I thought, how in three days time can I go and stand on that stage in front of all of these people if I can't even stand in this room at the back of the room? So I taught my workshops there and they went really well. And then the day came when it was my, my talk. And I was staying about seven minutes walk away. That walk took me half an hour. I had to stop three times and crouch on the side of the road and have meltdown after meltdown. I was, the, the energy coursing through my body was so enormous. When I say meltdown, I mean, I'm hyperventilating, my body is shaking, I'm crying, I can't think, my brain is complete fuzz, my legs won't work. I, it's terrifying. So I get there and I spot a woman I've, I've seen a couple of times in the hall. She's one of the women who's working on the tech team. And I grab her by the hand and I pull her out and I say, I can't do this. And she gets me to breathe. And we hand over the music that I'm going to walk up to. And when my time comes, she puts, we put on the music and I hold her hand every step of the way up to that stage. And my legs are shaking and my knees are knocking so badly I can barely walk. And I climb onto that stage and I look out at 300 people and I cry and I shake and I cry and I shake. And the music finishes and I start to talk. And the theme of my talk is fear, fear and power within the idea of burning woman and reclaiming our feminine power. But I need people to know that that is the degree of fear that I work under. And yet I know that what I'm doing is important and right. But that is the degree of fear. So if people feel like something to do with the sacred feminine is drawing their soul in and yet their body is responding in fear, just remember you're not alone in that. There's so many reasons why we feel this fear. We've been taught it's not safe to be a woman who believes in the sacred feminine, who speaks for the sacred feminine. We've seen the history books. We've seen what happens to women who speak out. We see the witch burnings. We hear time and time again of women being chastised for saying what they shouldn't say. We know how dangerous it is. So when you feel that fear, you're not being stupid, but it doesn't mean stop. Well, um, congratulations, Lucy. Uh, you're, you have the record for making me cry in the podcast <laughs> at the er earliest point. So <laughs> well done. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have that effect on people, but I cried first. So. <laughs> uh, well, gosh, wow. That's that. Yeah. That deeply resonates with me. And I would imagine there are a lot of listeners who would feel the same way. Oh. Um, and, you know, you, you referenced like we didn't start where we thought we would, but 
you know, in a roundabout way, we kind of, we, we sort of did because <laughs> if, if you've been listening to the show before, you know that I often like to talk um, with people about their spiritual background. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that, Lucy, maybe <laughs> you didn't grow up in a house that celebrated the divine feminine if we're talking about the <laughs> intensity of this kind of fear. <laughs> but I'll let you speak to that. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be about right. <laughs> <laughs> but neither did I neither did I grow up in a house that was religiously dogmatic. I mean, I'm not coming from that degree either, but the sort of things that I'm into <laughs> um, do not feel acceptable to um, certainly my dad's kind of view of 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 things you know these women's things are all a bit weird and you know in the in the you know i live in a small very catholic village in ireland like what i what i'm into what i my what my work is what my beliefs are would set me aside as a part as as very strange very odd you know i don't live in a big alternative community where this sort of thing is is the norm so i've you know growing up I, I grew up in three generations back, at least, probably many more of being on both sides of my family, being creatively self-employed. So we, we're a very kind of bohemian, creative lot. But so there's always been a kind of a free thinking has been totally allowed. We're not, nobody was religious in the kind of the, conventional sense until my mum she she did many explorations in in during my childhood like you know first of all it was um Quakerism which I loved and I still return to um I feel that there's space there for for freedom of belief within a community I I very much respect them still um and and go still sometimes um and then it moved on to you know kind of more pagan kind of women's circles and crystals and circle dancing and then we moved on to white eagle and the transmissions of white eagle and then we moved on to uh anglicanism and i was i was baptized age seven in the in the church of england then we moved on to evangelical christianity then we went to feng shui and um, not being allowed to leave the toilet seat, seat open in case energy went down it. <laughs> you know, so like, it was quite a spiritual journey that I was kind of dragged along on, on my mum's side during my childhood. Wow. Yeah. And my dad has also been somebody who's, you know, he would come from he would be a kind of a hippie at heart and uh he'd probably hate me for saying that but he is um <laughs> and you know would follow a lot of kind of gurus of sorts so my mum would too so you know um you know one at one point they'd be into Eckhart Tolle and then another time it would be Thich Nhat Hanh um or Ram Das or you know there was always a flavor of the moment with both of them as to who was the this the flavor of spirituality that was 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 in fashion for them and i i i mean i that sounds scornful and i don't mean it like that it was true and real for them but it was just one wave after another 
and so I saw I saw this ability to engage with lots of perspectives and yet in another sense the perspectives were all less so with evangelical Christianity versus white eagle but you know they were um I guess I I really got from them that I was free to choose what I believed um, and that it needed to honor who I was and where I was at that was very clear there was you know but all of these things were still kind of male based you know they were male gurus and they were male gods um there wasn't a place for for the feminine and so when i went to university this is where i lose half my audience now because i've never said this out loud when i went to university um i did i did a year at drama school and then i did um i transferred to do history of ideas with english um and there was the option to do some women's studies modules and i was like oh god women's studies <laughs> okay so that's where i'm starting from right because that's what i kind of inherited from my dad this kind of slightly scornfulness like he has this massive respect for women and a slight scorn as well uh and it was like oh you know that's just kind of women trying to make themselves feel better about how the fact they didn't do anything interesting that was the kind of thing i felt so come second year we were doing a particular module and we had the women's studies teacher teaching a couple of the classes and she was this woman, small woman with bleach blonde hair she'd be in her 60s massive colorful jewelry and she was alive and she she kind of you know dropped in a few books and quotes and I was like, hmm, I haven't heard of any of these before. And so I was in that area of the library that I'd never really been in before. And um, I came across this book called The First Sex by um, Elizabeth Gould Davis. Hmm. Never heard of this book before. Picked it up and I started reading and I basically didn't stop reading until I was finished. I read it, you know, the whole way through my lectures, uh, on the bus, on the way home and then stayed up at night reading it. And then because this was pre lots of internet, it was, you know, internet was still kind of basic then. I um, <laughs> I took it to the student union um, place and I photocopied half the book because I needed to keep this information. So she was talking about how prehistory, pre his story, there were these matriarchal cultures and the male god wasn't the first god that there was and my brain nearly exploded <laughs> i just i couldn't believe why i'd never been told any of this why i i hadn't heard of it like it wasn't just like a an adding a bit of evidence to something i knew something about it was completely new to me and I guess I've never really recovered from that brain blasting. Suddenly it made me look at everything we were doing in what I would call a very progressive class. History of ideas incorporates history, cultural studies, literature, 
into philosophy, movements of art. So it was far broader than just the key male philosophers. And yet still the male, the male voices in it. So it was taught by two male teachers. Um, and the male voices in it were, say, 97% of the voices, the perspectives that we heard. And this was by progressive men who had sought out female sources and had written the textbooks for it. So, like, they were trying hard. So I started suddenly seeing this absence of women everywhere. I'd given up history age 16 because I was like, I was so bored of kings and battles. I was just, I was done with it. But I love learning about human culture and where we came from and the patterns of, of human behavior and, and you know the cycles we go through and how we develop and change i love that but the the masculine warmongering power hungry thing just turned me right off and suddenly i was like whoa <laughs> we have not been taught about women all the way through and it's not that women weren't doing anything it's that women haven't been considered important but we were doing stuff the whole way through we were there we had our own cultures of of religion of spirituality of arts it was all there and then it's just been like covered over with this great big blanket mm-hmm and dismissed and belittled and made unimportant. And I realized that I had internalized that. And so that has been my work of the last 20, 21 years is unlearning that lens and seeing through my eyes and the eyes of other women who are as interested in this as I am in helping each other to kind of pull away the veils, uncover stuff, share the information, reweave a new, um, a her story. You know, where where have we actually come from? What have our practices been? Who have our heroines been? Like, where were we? Where are we from our perspective? I think... It's so much of what you just said really resonates with me. I think, I, I mean, t- different circumstances, but I had a very similar experience, awakening of like, whoa. And, and so, you know, I didn't grow up the way that you did, but I had my own spiritual seeking time as an adult, an adulthood where I tried out everything. Uh, I was just, you know, pursuing it all. And, you know, the realization that, um, that a female perspective had been missing from everything, like mm. everything, even the more, even the more feminine. You know, I spent some time studying, um, reading about South American shamanism and Alberto Violdo, which was wonderful. I mean, I learned so much. I, I greatly appreciated what I learned from him. But even that, that you know, it was that the feminine was sort of there, but not there. Mm. It, you know, it, it was it was there, but only to, at like you know the shallowest place and and I, I want to pause there that was my personal impression no offense to Alberto Violdo or anybody who's been moved by his work but that was my experience of looking at it and saying oh, wait there's a much there's a 
but no, there's a, there's a deeper feminine spiritual experience that is just not being put into words. And I think that it's sort of like the, um, the blinders falling off your eyes, you know, like once I realized that it was, it was almost crazy making, you know, to realize. That was, that was exactly my experience. Yeah. Because like, you know, I went to a Catholic school, we're not Catholic, but you know, it was a very strong school for arts. And so I got a scholarship there and I went to this Catholic school. So all the nuns were there doing all the everyday stuff of, of small ceremony and, and stuff, but it was the priests that were in charge. And until I was at university, and this is a graduate university, so I was 23, 24, I had never seen a female priest. So that's the degree of, and I don't come from a conservative background, but it's just they didn't exist in England because they still don't exist in Catholicism, but they didn't exist in the Anglican church either. And so I was in church. I used to, so I've always had a deep connection to the sacred. And my only portal to that has been through, through books and reading, through prayer and, and personal experience, through creativity and through church, like church, especially church music. I used to sing in several choirs at school and the terror it's really interesting, the terror that I experience when I speak about and do work with the sacred feminine is the same that I have about my own voice mm -hmm. and releasing my voice. Um, so I used to always sing in a choir, but I'd never do solos because I was too terrified. But this thing about being part of a group singing, to me, music has always, especially sacred music, a cappella sacred music, has it's like an instant connection to the sacred. And so when I was at, at graduate school in Cambridge, I used to go to church twice a day on a Sunday because of the music. I was in um, Trinity, which has one of the best choirs in the UK. And these, these, this choir is dedicated. They you know, practice for two hours, four or five times a week. Like it is one of the most incredible choirs. Um, so I would go there. For the music and I would go there because of the sense of community that these two lovely gentle male priests and this female priest I want to call her a priestess but obviously she wasn't um, to me priestess means something quite different which came later but um, they they were gentle and loving and they focused on community and the sacred and that felt really good to me. And then someone would stand up and read something from the Bible and it would be he, 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 Father God, our Father. And I just, I got angrier and angrier each time I had to sit through this. He, he, he. And I was, my brain and my body and my soul were just fighting this internally. Like I was having to sit on my hands and bite my tongue because I wanted to scream so loudly in these lovely people's faces. No, like it's not just he. And I don't think God goes around smiting people and telling people to rape people as punishment. It's not, that's not right. Yeah. And yet I had this deep feeling of connection to the sacred and to this community. And so I was really troubled by that. So I decided to go back and 
read the Bible again because like I'd studied it at, at secondary school. I wanted to see if if there was some way to align my my understanding of the sacred that had previously been through Christianity with the Bible. And every week, like teachers sent from her, these Jehovah's Witnesses would turn up with their magazines that they'd hand over their magazines and I'd read their magazines too and just get angrier and angrier and each week I'd show up with my bible in my hand and read quotes to them and say do you seriously believe in this do you seriously think that this is acceptable and okay and then we moved house and we didn't get any Jehovah's Witnesses for a few months and everything started falling more into place in, in my own life as to what I kind of really was believing, even though it really scared me. And then the Jehovah's Witnesses called to the door and they knocked. And I told them what I believed. I said, I don't believe in the sort of God that you believe in. I believe in something that is an energy force. And I certainly don't believe that that energy force is male and they never came back <laughs> wow but that anger still erupts for me like I don't go to church anymore as I say I go to Quaker meetings sometimes and I bite my tongue if anyone reads a, a bible thing but you know most of the time people share the sort of bible things that to me are sacred still you know aren't full of he 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 and anger but um if I have to go to somebody's funeral and I sit through and I bite my tongue and I just, yeah, I have that, that no in me that's very, very strong now. And that no is the same no, which I feel deep in my bones when to do with me as a mother and me as a woman, when something happens because something happens to you because you're female and you know that this wouldn't happen to your husband or your brother that that same no is that is deeply rooted in me but it's still scary for me to say that no out loud because of the fear of the repercussions of what it, what might happen because I feel safer to swallow my no mm-hmm <sighs> Yeah, as you were talking about, you know, just this idea of the fear and I wonder from your perspective, um, you know, how deep that goes, how far back that goes. You know, I, I often hold the question of this, is this, um, you know, it's it's this container that we're still in right now, this culture, right, that we are part of, but there's also uh, – whatever happened to my ancestors or, you know, whatever may have happened to me if, if I was here before in a different incarnation. I wonder if you think of the fear in those terms sometimes too. Yes. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than my lifetime experiences without a shadow of a doubt. It's, it's ancestral, but I'm not saying it's specific to my genetic ancestors, but it's, it is a deep feminine fear, a female fear that I don't recognize in my husband or my father. It's not there. Not in that way at all. Yeah. 
same and it's not because i've had a, a dangerous life i've had a very privileged life in so many ways um it's it's much much bigger than me but it's strong in me the other thing that i was thinking as you were talking is um you know for me the the awareness of the lack of the the feminine spiritual presence you know just how that didn't exist oh. and when i it, i sort of it this all kind of happened for me very dramatically on a particular day you know it all just sort of like poured into my head i was i was holding a baby you know of course you know i was holding my little newborn and you know it was just kind of realizing like wow like we don't have you know i was actually questioning why i'd never read about the sacred nature of childbirth Oh and I, yeah, and, I, and I'd done so much spiritual reading at that point, and that was when the the portal really opened, and it was like, yeah. boom! Of course, nobody's writing about the spiritual nature of childbirth because the men are writing the books, and they've never had a baby. They don't know, yeah. they can't describe it. But it was sort of like all of this awareness came stacking on top of that one after the other. When I started to realize that there wasn't anything that I could point to culturally that had been created with the input of women nothing and it's a question that i i like to pose you know i I remember i shared it with a male friend and was you know perversely pleased to see his eyes bug out when he realized like (laughs) what i was saying was true i was like come on name one thing one thing like one you know basic underpinning of our culture that was created with women yeah the participation of women doesn't even have to be the equal participation. The participation of women. You can't name anything. Religion, no. Healthcare system, no. Feminism. Economic economic models, no. Yeah. None of it. Yeah. None of it. Academics, no. Yeah. And to realize the, the magnitude of that, I just even now I get it's it's just so big. It's so big. I get angry yeah. all over again. I feel that yeah. just this is enough to make any of us insane. <laughs> yeah. And I, I've got to say, I really shared that experience of birth with you in that I, I found birth the most empowering experience of my life. And I prepared for it because part of my neurology is that being in a hospital type setting sets off a trauma-like response so I knew I wasn't going to be able to be in a in a medicalized setting so I was going to have to be birthing at home so I was going to have to know what the hell I was doing and that I had somebody I really trusted with me and that I knew what was going on otherwise my brain and body would freak out so I knew I had to prepare myself I was fortunate that you know I had a stepmother who had had a water birth at home So I knew that that was a possibility. So I knew that birthing as a sacred thing, as a home-based thing, as a non-system, non-medicalized thing was possible. But I truly, unlike I'd read Anime Gaskin, who just to me is a goddess, um, Hmm. and Pam England, I, you know, but to actually experience it in an embodied manner, that power the terror power surging through um opening you up pushing you to your absolute limit and beyond was a teaching moment like none other in my life and i say this with the awareness that there's a lot of women who 
can't have children, haven't had children, or have had really disempowering birth experiences. And I'm saying this not wanting to rub my experience in their face, but simply to speak my truth of that experience, which was that it was an absolute connection to my power and a re-experiencing of what my body was capable of, who I was, how I was. And then new motherhood took my legs from underneath me and, you know, the readjustment of who am I in this world? Now I've got a little baby and, you know, I'm cut off from the culture and suddenly I'm being treated like a stupid person because I'm female and I don't know anything about my body. And, you know, all that kicked in then. <laughs> all that scary, scary learning of, you know, not just keeping a human being alive, um, but keeping it alive with my breasts in a culture which that isn't normal in and going through the shame of, you know, is it acceptable to have my breast out in public? Is it acceptable to have my breast out in front of my father-in-law? Why is my body unacceptable when it makes this child double in size in six months and deliciously pudgy? There can't be shame in that. It, there just can't. And yet my culture tells me that there is. So right from the beginning of motherhood, there was even being pregnant, there was this deep shame. And I come from two parents who, in terms of sex, would be total, you know, relaxed hippies, you know, no kind of moral judgment on sex. The shame of telling my mum and dad that I was pregnant was like, and I was 25, I was married. It was this admission that I'd had sex. And then I, I was wearing attached to my body for nine months, this public admission that I'd had sex. Just felt so, yeah. It, the amount of shame involved, the amount of judgment involved with being a pregnant woman, with being a new mother, I was gobsmacked because it wasn't the same for my husband. How he was treated was not the same, you know. And so I really got an, a, a fast education in what it meant to be female in this culture. And when you're younger and you don't have children yet, there's some bits you can avoid of that. You know, you still have to be careful how you dress. And uh, But once you become a mother, once you become slotted into that woman bracket, once you're having little niggles with your physical or mental health because you haven't actually been cared for as you should be, you haven't been nurtured as you should be as a pregnant woman and as a new mother, you suddenly, the cracks in our culture really start opening and you really start seeing what, what womanhood is seen as being how it's disrespected how it's denigrated so that that was a big learning mm. but also the the awakening of the mother tiger within the back off this is my baby the that just fierceness that you would do anything to protect this little creature that you would, you know, 10 times in a night and put your breast into its mouth when it's just bitten you, like, you know, things awaken 
in you new parts of you awaken when you have a child mm -hmm. new parts of the feminine and the female body and then you've got a whole new lot of stuff to figure out and study and unpack and relearn and yeah yeah absolutely i was also thinking too that um you know when you I'm assuming this, I don't know, maybe this happened to you as well. I think, I think it's a, see, this is sad that I don't know that this happens for all women or not, but you know, when you, when you have a baby, there's, there's this tremendous amount of energy that's pouring through you. And, uh, right. I mean, to bring a child into the world, it's, it's yeah. probably the most powerful force that we can experience as human beings. And so there, there's the same, there's the shaking, there's the sickness, there's the, you know, and even afterwards, right, your body just yeah. tremors and tremors and tremors yeah. because you've yeah. had a traumatic experience. And I, I think, you know, I hadn't really thought about it until we were having this conversation. But, you know, when you started and you were talking about your experience at the, the business or the, at, at the goddess conference, you know, it's, it's almost the same. It's like we're giving it birth. Is. It totally is. New and form of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm very, very grateful for having experienced birth in the way that I did, because I can see it in my spiritual experiences. I can see it in my creative experiences. I have journeyed this path of terror into the unknown, this growing larger with a force that isn't under my control, this needing to birth it out into this world and then the recovery of that. I've done that energetically again and again in these different spheres, but birth was the most embodied and physical example of that. And it's been a very valuable um, paradigm for me to be able to understand the other more invisible processes within those of, of creativity and of spirituality. Mm -hmm. but again I'm very mindful of the fact that for women who haven't had that experience of birth or who aren't mothers that this could be a very alienating thing I, I don't know what to do with that but I, I need to give it voice yeah yeah and I, I, I wonder too if just even the awareness though of the similarities of those experiences so you know if if you as a, a listener who, and you haven't had a baby but you know that terror and that feeling and the shaking and the you know whatever the crying like the the, the bigness of something trying to move through you we're we're, we're kind of talking about the same thing we're absolutely talking about the same thing yeah yeah so I want to ask you, um, and it's, it's, there's, I will go ahead and admit that there's like a little bit, there's some selfishness on my part because I'm a writer <laughs> <laughs> and it's my show. So I get to ask <laughs> questions that are relevant to me, but I'm, I really want to talk to you about your founding uh, Womancraft Publishing. And I first read about you even before I read Burning Woman, you know, in Sharon Blackie's book, uh, Women Rose Rooted mm. and um, was like, What? there's a woman that's done this. This is incredible. But I, I'd love to hear you just talk a little bit about that creation that you've birthed into the world and, and what, what inspired you to do that. It's a strange story, you see. <laughs> and there's several starts to it and they all matter. So there's the bit where I write this book. Hey, do you want an earworm? So I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment, so you have to see. <laughs> it's my 10th book. 
<laughs> and my books are weird and I find it really hard to talk about my books because they are weird and I want them to not be weird I want them to be easy to talk about <laughs> but they're not they're weird books so as I was writing yesterday I was like you know that song baby got back so I was, I was like I write weird books and I cannot lie so yeah that was going round and round my head <laughs> so I write weird books books that don't really fit into any particular genre and are very much written for women. There's a lot of publishing companies in this world, but when I started going through them, trying to find who to submit my book to, my first book that I started writing with my, my chicken poxy children on my lap, I couldn't really find any that fit me. So I found, I, I found the best fits I could. I got a couple of nice rejection letters and then got a yes and got that published. But it wasn't still quite right. So I decided, you know what? Whilst I was waiting, because patience is not one of my virtues, <laughs> which is one of the reasons why I struggle with motherhood. <laughs> um, so whilst I was waiting and feeling highly anxious, so that's another thing. Like I do a lot of stuff so I don't have to sit in anxiety all the time. I um, decided I was going to write a little ebook for my new blog so that it could be a free giveaway when people signed up to my mailing list because this is the sort of thing you're supposed to do so i wrote this little book moon time which was an ebook and i sent it to a couple of people and said look do you think this is all right and the immediate response was whoa lucy you need to publish this i was like oh okay um so i thought well you know while i'm waiting for this somebody to take this book the rainbow way um I'll just self-publish Moontime, just a little kind of, you know, so that people who want to download it for free can download it for free. And if anybody wants a paperback version, which my friends are saying they would, and I'm like, why would they want that? Um, <laughs> then they've got a paperback version. So it wasn't really a big deal. It was just like, you know, just for a few people who wanted it. And then it kind of, people gave it to people and suggested it to people. And then I suddenly realized that, um, if I was going to do the self-publishing thing and I still hadn't heard back from a couple of publishers, I might as well just put together some of my blog posts that I'd written and articles that I'd written on motherhood all in one place um, and see if I could make any money out of them. So I, you know, put them together as a, a little self-published book too. And um, then I got the contract for the Rainbow Way. And then I started comparing the sales for my self-published stuff versus the stuff published with a, uh, proper publisher and I was like hang on a second it makes more financial sense for me to publish my own work plus I'm not having to prove myself to anybody I get to publish what feels important to me I'm not having to kind of you know oh please please publish me you know thank you so much I'll, ch I'll change myself to exactly how you want me to be um I was actually just able to do what I was doing and it seemed to be communicating directly well to the women who were reading it so I did that for another book. Again, this, this other book was a children's version of a girl's version of Moontime for friends of mine whose daughters were starting their periods. I just wanted to give them something, you know, that was accessible at that age. It, it all started like that. It was really just providing stuff for people who I knew, who I wanted to hand on the information that was in my head and that I, I love research so that I'd researched but that I could give it to them, you know, in a paperback form rather than just, you know, email them something. And um, Reaching for the Moon started doing really well. And it's like, ah, oh, okay. Why would I go with a publisher 
and make a few pennies when I can actually make an income doing this. And I had various issues with my publisher and I'd spoken to several women who also had issues with their publishers and this publisher. And I thought, hang on, I've been a magazine editor now for six years. I've been writing for several years. I've got four books out now. I have a fair sense of self-publishing and marketing tools. I know that mainstream publishing is struggling because they're set up in a way for a world that doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And I know of a lot of women online doing a lot of really interesting things, writing really interesting things, who again, have no hope of getting published by these, these mainstream publishers. I need to do something about this. So the obvious thing is for me to set up a place which publishes my books, but we raise our game. So we look like proper published books. You know, we improve our layout. We improve our cover design. We take it up to the next level so they don't look self-published. But that I also offer my skills and experience and mentoring because that's something you really don't get in mainstream publishing and we do this in a wholehearted way so that it's a real creative enterprise so that kind of washed through my brain and then you know out the other side because i'm busy i've got three children and i'm helping to edit a magazine and i thought you know what for what i'm making editing this magazine for the amount of of my time that's going into it, I, I actually financially can't do this anymore. I need to get a raise. It's a small independent magazine. I said to the editor, may I have a raise? And she said, I'm really sorry, Lucy, there just is no more money. And I said to her, that's fine. I'm afraid I'm gonna leave. I'm starting my own publishing company. And it was literally like that. It wasn't, I hadn't had the conversation with my husband. I hadn't. <laughs> It was just, and that's what Womancraft has been since the beginning, has been kind of out of my hands. There's a bigger power behind it. I do the grunt work and um, she does the rest. You know, she draws the people to us. Yeah. So I, I stood on the beach that, that summer and I was 33 and I stood on the beach and I said, okay, <laughs> I was feeling good in life. I was like, okay, bring it on. And she brought it on. <laughs> and that was the process that Burning Woman is then about, you know, car crashes and, and um, illness and, and, and all of that at the beginning of starting Womancraft. It was very much an initiation of fire. Um, so Womancraft has been around for six years now, six and a half years, and um, is a community first and foremost. That's very much how I feel it. Every morning I, I light my candle and I offer prayers to and for the Womancraft community. It's a community of women around the world who share certain values, certain dreams and longings, who are very, very relieved to find voices reflecting what they feel deep in their souls. That's our work. Mm. Letting women be 
seen and heard and having their voices, seeing their voices expressed through the voice of another and then getting the courage to then raise their own voice to express their own truths. Because if it's just about our books, if it's just about people reading our books and they close it and oh, that was a nice book, we haven't done our work. Our work is what happens when the covers of that book are closed, but the spirit of that book is in the heart of that woman. That's our work. Mm. The books are just a vehicle, very beautiful vehicles. I mean, I've always said that my books are my fourth child and they are, you know, they, I've, books have been portals to other worlds since I can remember. They are my way of surviving when I can't survive in this world. They are deeply, deeply, deeply valuable things to me on so many levels, but they are in the end energetic portals that connect me to you and you to somebody else and help us to communicate not as a one-way thing not as me as writer and expert to you as reader who's subservient to me absolutely not it's us meeting somewhere in the middle through the medium of this book and then this work being released out into the world through each of us and augmenting through the sense of community that is built up through that. I was just thinking too of how beautiful it would be if, you know, this were the, <laughs> this were the basis of um, the way businesses were run, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just would blow the whole capitalist i don't know it just it, it it's just it's such a it's such a different way a different way it shows such a different way of being in the world and i find it tremendously inspiring we, thank you we have the courage to live it but it's scary at times you know it's our family business and it's it's you know it is it is scary but as i've said the whole way through this that fear is where i know that i'm connected to her and we have had to rethink things at many times we've had scary points at many times but she has always been with us through that even when we haven't understood with our logical brains like if we went if i'd gone to a bank back when i was 33 and said right i'm going to set up a publishing company they would have laughed me out of town <laughs> but we've done it and it is thriving in a climate which is very hard to do business in at the moment. And we're thriving in an industry that is struggling in many ways where big, big companies are struggling. So we, we are connected to something that informs every decision that we make something that is empowered by more far more than just money and its aim is far more than making money its number one aim is connection connection and amplification of voices that matter that would have got lost if money was just an issue and some of our books do fabulously well and they keep other books you know afloat which wouldn't have fought their own corner but those books then still get to be out there and that's that's just what's so valuable and we do the same with 
having artists work on our covers, about 95% of our artists work are female artists. Again, a, a cover is a portal, an energetic portal. Um, and women artists tend not to be well represented in general in the arts. Um, you know, if you look historically back, women's work tends not to be financially valued. So we're trying hard to do that, you know, as best we can with the financial resources we have available to us. And then we always think of how how can we pay it forward. So, you know, we support Tree Sisters, we support World Reader, which gives free e-copies of our books to dozens of developing countries. Um, we support many different women's charities, especially maternal charities, mental health charities. You know, that matters. It has to be integral to our business model. It can't be an afterthought. It's why, why we're here. We're not just here to fill our pockets with money. And I wish, <laughs> I wish that was the baseline of, of decency of what business was. But I know we're pretty unusual in that. Mm. Well, and I just love that you're creating a, a model, though, an example that someone else could follow, though, right? You know, it's, yeah. a, it's out there and it's, we have that representation. I also love just the, the energy of books, the way you're describing it. I'm thinking of, well, your book, you know, when, it, when I picked it up or... Um, you know, some of the, the early books that I read that really educated me about women's sacred histories. And some of those books are old, you know, Merlin Stone oh, or um, Gerda Lerner or, you know, books that were written in the 60s and 70s and authors have passed on. And yet those words are still so alive and the ideas are so um, visceral and alive. And so it, it, it just keeps rippling out through space and time in such powerful ways. I'm so grateful for books, especially from that um, wave of, of feminism where the, um, the richness of thought, the daringness, for example, Mary Daly. I mean, I only read her four or five years ago. I, I was just electrified. And she's been dead, I don't know, 10, 15 years. Like she was writing this book before I was born and just wow it jumped off the page to me and and it's that it's the the ability to embody with words the the energy of the sacred feminine is just is so valuable because it then means it doesn't matter where in the world you live if you are able and it's not even if you're able to read because nowadays with audiobooks too if you're able to speak a language then you can receive this information. You can receive it and have your embodied experience and then see how the two align. But you realize you're not by your, you're not alone. You're not alone in your experience. You're not alone in your thoughts. And there's a whole community of people out there also having these experiences and having these thoughts. And that's the most empowering thing because Patriarchy has kept us apart and told us that we're wrong and stupid and shamed us and shh, be quiet and pipe down and follow these rules and don't, you know, do not trust your body because shh. And what these books do, what these voices do, what podcasts like yours do is go, whoa, 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 you're right. You're actually right. These things you're experiencing, you're not alone. 
And that is the most empowering thing for any of us is to know that we're not crazy. We're not by ourselves. What we are experiencing is reality. It's a different reality to what we've been brought up and taught. But it's a reality. Yeah. Well, and now I'm, I'm wanting to place this conversation in the context of, of uh, this particular moment in time to of, you know, that feeling, <laughs> right? I mean, so there's that feeling of not yeah. being, a, how do you even put words to where we are in time right now? I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> the craziness and the chaos and the complete putrefaction of patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's this massive breakdown, right? I was actually yeah. just reading this morning before we hopped on and um, an excerpt of an, I don't know if you ever read Braiding Sweet Gra- Braiding Sweetgrass by um, Robin Wall Kemmerer. Um, it's on my to-, to read list. I've been recommending it by, recommended it by so many people. It's a beautiful book. Um, and she just released an excerpt of a new intro that she wrote, just trying to, trying to, you know, place it more in this current moment that we're at. And um, but one of the things that she references, and I don't know that she says it this way, but you know, she's talking about this breakdown as well. And um, but he, you know, there's this place, there's this place in the in the breakdown where you don't really know where you're going. Yeah. Right. And I I feel so much like that's kind of where we are right now. We're seeing like this disintegration like, under our feet, and we're watching. De- patriarchy fall apart it certainly seems to me that we're in the end stages of capitalism like what but where do we go from here you know it's sort of like whoa what's going to happen and I'm just I guess I'm wanting to place our conversation within that context and bringing these women's voices forward like how does that help us in this moment in time so in the summer I was in the short time we've had between um lockdowns here in Ireland (laughs) um I was recording the audiobook for my book, Medicine Woman, Reclaiming the Soul of Him. And I, I had to do exactly that. I had to place what were scarily prescient words about the breakdown of the system that I'd written back in 2017, 2018. I had to place them in the context of coronavirus. I had to place this, this Medicine Woman ostensibly is about autoimmune conditions and women's illnesses and women's voices not being believed when they're sick or in pain. Mm. That's ostensibly what it's about. What it's really about is that that's where we are at now as a culture. Women's voices not being heard or heeded whilst the, the system not believing us whilst everything is breaking down around us and yet trying to make us just believe that everything's okay. That's where we're at. We're being, um, oh, the the term for it has has gone. It's a kind of a gaslighting where -hmm. somebody keeps telling you, oh, no, 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 you're you're imagining it, you're imagining it, you're imagining it. Um, The term will come back to me after we've finished our conversation, I know. (laughs) But it's this, this clash of what you know on one level and what you know on another level. And what we know on the deeper level about the sacred feminine, about the energetics of patriarchy, all of that, it's coming to pass 
but those of us who have language for it can see and recognize that and those that don't can't and so it's a very weird place to be and then you've got all the conspiracy theories like piling in on top which um <laughs> i don't even want to speak to because we're going to have people who have all sorts of different beliefs but there is some genuinely crazy stuff out there as well yeah um so we've got the conspiracy theories we've got the alternate you know fake news that we've been told is fake or not fake we're being told alternate things by you know people like trump and other you know major dictator type rulers um we're we've got what we feel in our bodies we've got what we're experiencing around us which in one sense is normality and another sense everything's very weird because you know we have to stay home and we're wearing masks and you can't hug your friend and you know it's a real it's really disconcerting knowing what to believe what is real what is true and everybody is feeling scared now it's not just women who are feeling scared it's not just people of color who are feeling scared it's not just those of us who are neurodiverse like we're dealing with this invisible thing. We don't know how long it's going to go on for. We don't know how many people it's going to kill. We don't know how, how sick you're going to get, you know, and that's just one thing we're dealing with climate change. We're dealing with a lot of invisible stuff and there's a lot of fear coming up because of that. But those of us who have walked this path personally for many years, those of us, who have given birth, those of us who have gone through the creative process, those of us who have gone through spiritual transformations, those of us who have left what seemed familiar before, what seemed normal before, and had to, we had to leave it behind. We had to be ripped from it and found ourselves transplanted in a different state of being. We know what this is. It's just happening on a much, much bigger scale and everybody's involved, including our planet, including our life support system. But we know this. And it's just remembering that. It's remembering in the midst of the fear, in the midst of that terror that we experience on one level, there's the, the very real fear of not surviving but there's also the very real fear that we know that we've been talking about the whole way through this, which is the sacred she coming through us, the something bigger, resh reshaping, shifting, but things have to be cracked open before the new can be birthed through. And that's where we're at right now. So it's in the middle of that fear, if we can identify the sacred fear, if we can flip the scared to sacred, then we will be the ones who will be providing the spiritual support through this time of change, because I don't think that the patriarchy is going to be able to provide spiritual, creative, emotional support through their own destruction. I think you're right. I'm not sure how much support patriarchal religions are going to be able to be when what they believe is being torn apart. I'm not sure how much support the state's going to be able to provide when, you know, it's melting down. Like, you're right, we started in exactly the right place. We started with fear and meltdown, and that's where we're at. We're at meltdown, mm -hmm. just on a global scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I love your words about, you know, 
the scared, transforming the scared to the sacred. Just a tiny flip. That's right. You just move a letter. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's a learning to trust and open to the process rather than shut down and run. Yeah. It's learning to stand on that stage with your knees knocking and your heart racing and feeling like you're going to vomit and pee yourself and <laughs> you're crying in front of everybody, but you're holding firm as, as what needs to happen pours through as you're allowing yourself to be a channel of something bigger than you in, in great faith that what is needing to be born is coming through. Mm. Wow. And, and that feels like a, a perfect place to end this, you know, I, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but you know, just may it be so, you know, that mm. feels like a powerful prayer to end on to may we all mm. have the courage to birth what needs to be birthed mm. Mm. and hold each other as we do. Oh, absolutely. To hold each other's hands, to have each other's, to have our hands on each other's backs, to hold space for each other, to support each other, to, you know, we're not in it alone. That is the main thing. Not only do we have the support from the feminine, which is just doing her thing, just wanting to, to rebalance, you know, not wipe away the masculine, just come back into balance. That's all she's trying to do. But also, you know, there's 7 billion of us here. <laughs> that's a lot of support we've got right there. And that's just the humans. That's not the cats and the dogs and the birds and the, you know, all of those creatures that can, we can connect with and can support us too. Like we're not in this alone. That's the biggest myth that patriarchy has peddled us in us, that we're shameful and alone. We're not. Absolutely. Hmm. Well, I just, from the bottom of my heart, I thank you. This is such a beautiful conversation. I feel really uh, nourished. And my only bummer, I think I've said this on the podcast before, is that, you know, this is this audio medium. I, I want to be in person with people. I want to hang out with people and <laughs> give hugs. And, you know, I just, uh, I'm so grateful for this conversation with you. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you want to learn more about Lucy's work, uh, Lucy, your website is, uh, it's Lucy H Pierce, P E A R C E.com. Right. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. woman, womancraftpublishing.com. Mm -hmm. And I'll make sure that I put, uh, I'll put those, uh, web addresses in the show notes. And, uh, I want to thank all you guys as always for listening and, um, yeah, if you like the show, please feel free to subscribe. Give us a five-star review on iTunes or tell your friends about it. You can do all those things if you want. And um, until next time, we'll talk to you again soon. Home to Her is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine. And you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at Home to Her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. 
Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon.